Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and thank you for joining me once again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists, and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. In today's episode, we will continue the story of the very first divorce in England, that of John Manners, Lord Ruse, and his straying wife, the Lady Anne Manners. When we left the unhappy couple at the end of the last episode, Lord Ruse had obtained his bed and board divorce from the Lady Anne. But as we recall, this type of so-called divorce was just a legally recognised separation, not a severance of the marital bond. And Lady Anne's sons were, in law, still deemed to be the legitimate heirs of Lord Ruse, even though he had not fathered them. What Lord Ruse needed was an act of Parliament to bastardise Lady Anne's children, as well as any other children she might bear in the future while she was still lawfully his wife. It was the only solution he could see to counter what had become an intolerable situation. In October of 1666, a bill detailing the foul carriage of Lady Anne was read. It was intended that this bill would go on to a second reading in the House of Lords in November of 1666. However, George Villiers, the second Duke of Buckingham, emerged like a worm from the grave of the scandal to make his presence felt. And he could not be ignored. The Duke of Buckingham was the son of one of the richest women in England, Catherine Manners, later Catherine Villiers, Duchess of Buckingham, Marchioness of Antrim, and the 18th Baroness de Ruse of Helmsley. And thus the Duke of Buckingham too was a descendant of the beleaguered Manners family. And by some quirk of history, the Barony of de Ruse, unlike the Earldom of Rutland, could be inherited through the female line of descent. He therefore maintained that he had a claim to the Ruse title in the absence of any legitimate heirs to Lord Ruse, and he was convinced that the language of the bill would prejudice his right to the title in the event that Lord Ruse were to die without a legitimate direct heir to inherit. It was at this point that the scandal became somewhat farcical. Lord Dorchester, Lady Anne's father, who, as I am sure you will recall from last time, turned against his wayward daughter and nailed his colours firmly to the mast of Lord Rue's cause. Well, he allowed his infamous temper to get the better of him once more. He became involved in a disgraceful brawl with the Duke of Buckingham in the painted chamber of the Palace of Westminster. A magnificent, vibrant room of state where the walls were adorned with brightly coloured murals of biblical scenes and a canopied bed sat at one end of the room. The painted chamber, which was later sadly destroyed in a fire which engulfed the building in 1834, was no place for what was no better than a common street fight. The altercation between Lord Dorchester and the Duke of Buckingham should never have taken place and certainly not in that stately room. The clash was violent, the men behaving like a crazed pair of fighting cocks in a cockpit, with periwigs being seized and clumps of hair being torn from heads. The encounter solved, 
nothing, and resulted in both Lord Dorchester and the Duke of Buckingham being carted off to the Tower of London to cool their heels. The men were only released after petitions of apology were made. In the meantime, as no agreement could be found to settle the concerns of the Duke of Buckingham in relation to the ruse title, the bill stalled. The bill returned for consideration in early 1667, and recognising the seriousness of the matter before it, the House referred it to a committee made up of eminent jurists. The bill was then discussed by the House, and the committee commented that they had made some alterations to the proposed bill, and had added in a proviso relating to the Duke of Buckingham's claim to the ruse title. The House then did something that was contrary to all the rules relating to evidence. They accepted, as undisputed fact, the testimony of Lord Ruse that he had enjoyed no carnal knowledge of his wife since 4 March 1659, without hearing from Lady Anne or any counsel on behalf of the children born of her body. The Lords therefore ordered the bill to be engrossed and passed it over to the Commons. When the bill went before the Commons, the Manners family were not prepared to leave anything to chance. The family hosted a dinner at the Dog Tavern, an establishment nearby to the Palace of Westminster, where Samuel Pepys, the famous London diarist, frequently dined. No expense was spared in the entertainment of the 40 to 50 members of the House of Commons who attended as their guests. As soon as the honourable members had finished dining, no doubt having consumed generous amounts of alcohol, they were escorted to the House of Commons, where the bill to illegitimise the children of Lady Anne Ruse was passed without amendment. It received the royal assent just over a week later. Lady Anne's sons, known as John and Charles Manners, may have carried Lord Rue's family name of Manners, but by this act of Parliament they had been bastardised and could never inherit the title and estate of Lord Rue's or that of the Earl of Rutland. This act also bastardised any future children of Lady Anne, which was just as well, as by this time it appeared that she had given birth to a third son as a consequence of her lewd and vicious and abominable way of living. This child she called Henry Manners. Lady Anne was condemned as a woman who had abandoned all honour and virtue, frequented light, loose company in an impudent, infamous and lascivious way. The house wanted her made an example of, lest any other worthy women be emboldened to engage in such graceless and wicked behaviour. This, however, only solved part of the problem. Lord Ruse was no longer burdened with heirs that were not of his own blood, but he was still married to Lady Anne, and as such could not take another wife to provide him with legitimate heirs. The Manners family wished to ensure that if Lord Ruse were to marry again, that any sons of the subsequent marriage would be considered as lawful heirs to the earldom of Rutland. By 1670, Lord Ruse had brought a petition to the House of Lords for a divorce, a divorce that would bring his marriage to an end. Once more, the Manners family scandalised the court of Charles II, with his majesty even commenting that the debates in the House of Lords were as good as a play. But Charles II had an even greater motivation for attending the sessions than pure voyeurism. 
The marriage of Lord and Lady Roos had become something of a test case, because like Henry VIII before him, the king was considering a divorce of his own. Charles II had married Catherine of Braganza in September of 1662. The daughter of King John IV of Portugal, Catherine was a devout Catholic, which made her an unpopular choice of king's consort for a Protestant nation. She had also been brought up in a convent, secluded from courtly life, which made her singularly unsuited to take her place with confidence in the morass of immorality that was the court of Charles II. Needless to say, the marriage was not a happy one. Charles II indulged in frequent infidelities, fathering as many as 14 illegitimate children, most of which he acknowledged. Catherine, however, to compound her misery at having to share her husband with a number of the king's mistresses, the most infamous of which was Barbara Palmer, known as the uncrowned queen, suffered a series of devastating miscarriages, just as Catherine of Aragon had done before her. Her losses drove her half mad with grief, and she was haunted by visions of undead children. The king despaired of fathering an heir with his fragile wife. Once more, the line of succession to the English throne was in peril, and once more the king looked to a divorce as the answer to this dilemma. But much had changed since the time of Henry VIII. Charles II could not be certain that he would have his divorce should he choose to demand one. The petition of Lord Roos therefore became something of a test case for the monarch. His majesty watched the debates with a keen eye. There were other, more mercenary interests to be considered as well, as the house turned its collective mind to consider the possibility of divorce. The sharks had already started to circle, having centred the life's blood that was the magnificent wealth of Lord Roos, and if he were permitted to remarry and have legitimate sons, the more distant relations of Lord Roos feared that they would lose out on what promised to be a tantalisingly bountiful inheritance. Both Lords Angelsey and Ashley sought to interfere with the progression of the proposed bill. They both had sons who had married the sisters of Lord Roos, and it was not in their sons' best interests to allow Lord Roos to remarry and sire sons that would rob them of the potential riches. The debates, therefore, were not straightforward. And there was still the Lady Anne to be considered. It would be fair to say that she had not been having an easy time of it, although it could be argued that she had made her bed and had no cause to complain if she no longer found it comfortable. Her grievance was that Lord Roos had failed to provide her with any income or maintenance to support herself, and she had accumulated vast debts in London that she was unable to meet. To avoid her debtors and the potential imprisonment for failure to meet her debts, Lady Anne had fled to Ireland with her lover and her bastard children. But having received news of her husband's attempts to bring their woeful marriage to an end, Lady Anne saw an opportunity to plead her case and restore her financial position to something approximating what she had been used to as an heiress to a considerable fortune. She emerged from exile in Ireland to complain that Lord Roos had refused to provide her with any funds for her maintenance, and she was destitute as a result. 
she brought her own petition for her husband to provide financial support for her. After all, her marriage to Lord Roos had gifted him with a significant wealth in the form of her dowry. At the time, it was generally understood that a wife would bring her dowry to the marriage and that she would receive in return a jointure from her husband's estate should she survive him. The amount of the jointure was usually determined by reference to the value of the dowry. Unfortunately for Lady Anne, an adulterous wife was in the unhappy position of being entitled to neither a return of her portion nor a jointure. The House of Lords was left to consider the competing petitions of Lord and Lady Ruse, and make no mistake, they knew that the royal eye was watching over their proceedings. The discussions that took place were a strange combination of the spiritual, the moral, the legal, and the financial. Much debate was given over to biblical interpretations as to whether a remarriage would constitute adultery. There was a particular focus on the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, where it was stated, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. However, the choice of text was revealing, demonstrating that Parliament was inclined to favour the petition of Lord Roos for a divorce. The book of Matthew allowed for an interpretation that was more favourable to the cause of Lord Roos, sanctioning remarriage where fornication had been the reason for putting a wife away. The Gospels, according to Mark and Luke, were far more unequivocal, with Luke chapter 16 verse 18 stating, for example, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Having considered the various religious arguments, the bill moved on to a second reading where Lady Anne Ruse made an appearance herself before the House of Lords. She was asked to respond to the scandals that her mother-in-law, the Countess of Rutland, had accused her of. Lady Anne refused to comment on that aspect that the Lords wished to discuss, and instead limited her answer to the financial. What concerned Lady Anne was money, or rather, her lack of it. She asked their lordships that she, be, that she be permitted to have counsel speak for her. But when she was recalled before the house, it was discovered that she had once more fled. Lady Anne had read the situation correctly. She had nothing to gain by waiting to see if the house would favour her petition. Their lordships were clearly hostile to anything that this impudent woman had to say for herself. Lady Anne was fated to spend the rest of her life fleeing from her debts, never to receive any financial recompense or support from either her husband or her father. As the debates before the House of Lords continued, their lordships revisited the case of William Parr and his second marriage to Lady Elizabeth Brooke, recognising that the children of this marriage 
had been legitimated after Pa had put away his first wife for adultery, ignoring the fact that the Lady Anne Bouchier had been the one to flee the marriage rather than having been put away. They conveniently also ignored the fact that Pa had never actually obtained a divorce from his adulterous first wife, and what Parliament had done then was simply to legitimise any children that Pa would go on to have with his second wife. Of course, as we recall in that particular instance, the act that had been passed in favour of William Pa was never tested, as he was destined to die childless. So, as a precedent, it was not particularly helpful for the House in their consideration of the ruse marriage. The House of Lords also heard from Lord Dorchester, still fuming at his wayward daughter, who spoke of the foul blemish that Lady Anne had besmirched both her father and her husband with. The Earl of Rutland also took to the floor to remind the House of Lords that if Lord Roos, the sole male heir to the Manor's family, was not to be allowed to remarry and have legitimate sons, the title would expire with him. The Duke of Buckingham, meanwhile, was still making something of a nuisance of himself, still fretting over his own claim to the various titles of the family, but it was clear that the sympathy of the house lay with Lord Roos. The Duke of York, brother to the King, vigorously resisted the bill, no doubt keenly aware that the Roos divorce would open up the possibility of a divorce for the King and potentially thwart his own ambitions for the Crown. Yet despite his objections, and the objection of 33 other peers, the bill was passed through both the House of Lords and the Commons. On 11 April 1670, the bill granting Lord Roos a divorce, known as a divorce avincula matrimony, received the royal assent. With that, the marital bond between Lord Roos and Lady Anne was finally severed, Lord Roos was free to marry again, and the first parliamentary divorce was entered into the annals of history. It was not long before Lord Roos risked the perils of matrimony once more, marrying Lady Diana Bruce in 1671. That marriage ended in tragedy, with the death of Lady Diana in childbirth, with Robert, the longed-for son of Lord Roos, dying with her. Undaunted, the 35-year-old Lord Roos returned to the matrimonial altar once more, this time with the 15-year-old daughter of Viscount Camden, Catherine Knoll, in 1673. In 1676, the new Lady Ruse gave birth to a son, also called John. At long last, there was a male heir to succeed Lord Ruse to the title of the Earl of Rutland, a title which Lord Ruse was to inherit just three years later. In 1703, John Manners, once Lord Roos, then the Ninth Earl of Rutland, was made the first Duke of Rutland. The only blight to an otherwise happy ending for the thrice-married Lord Roos was that his mother Frances, the resourceful and spirited Countess of Rutland, did not live to see her son hold a legitimate heir in his arms. If you were to visit Beaver Castle today, one of the finest examples of Regency architecture in the world, having been rebuilt by the fifth Duchess of Rutland, Elizabeth Manners, in the early 1800s. And head up the grand staircase, you will see a stately portrait of John Manners, the first Duke of Rutland, smiling down on you. To one side of his grace, the Duke, sits a portrait of the tragic Lady Diana, with the spirit of a lost baby hovering above her, a reminder that her life was sacrificed in her effort to give birth. 
to his other side, a serene portrait of Lady Catherine. The image of Lady Anne is nowhere to be found, almost as if all trace of the Duke's first wife had been erased from the history of the family. There was only one small reminder of the woman who had brought such a shameful scandal down on the manor's family. Sitting amongst the grand halls and rooms of the castle is a wooden cradle, polished and intricately carved. On the back it reveals that it was made for the daughter of Lady Anne in 1658, the child that did not live and whose death accelerated the demise of the marriage of her parents. The cradle lies empty. As for Lady Anne, little more of her fate is known other than she too remarried. The only thing that is known with some degree of certainty, largely due to the scandal it created at the time, was that her second husband, a Mr Vaughan, was nearly killed in 1677 in a duel with Philip Herbert, the infamous 7th Earl of Pembroke, who was notorious for his temper and unprovoked attacks on his fellow peers. Other than that, Lady Anne carried her notoriety with her through the rest of her life, dying at some time before 1697 in poverty and disgrace. And as for her two sons, John and Charles Manners, their fate too is ignotus, unknown, just as one of them had once been named. There is no doubt that the House of Lords was motivated by political concerns when they pronounced in favour of a divorce for Lord Roos. Marital unhappiness was not a relevant concern. This much was recognised when the Royal Commission, established to examine divorce law in 1850, examined the history of the law of divorce, and in their resulting report, the Commission stated that the predominant purpose of the bill relating to Lord Roos was to continue the succession and probably the peerage in the male line. However, the Commission also conceded that the bill may have been passed on political grounds to set a precedent to enable Charles II to separate from his first wife, by whom he had no children, and marry again, with the express purpose of excluding his brother, the Duke of York, from the throne. And underlying this concern was the fact that the Duke of York was a staunch and committed Catholic. In short, it could even be said that the Ruse divorce was granted not purely to preserve the ancient line of the Manor's family, but to keep the Catholics from the throne. In the event, this proved to be futile. Charles II may not have been a faithful husband to Catherine, but despite his philandering ways, he remained loyal to her, defending her name when it was slandered and refusing to divorce her, even in the face of her increasing instability of the mind and her inability to bear him an heir. The Catholic Duke of York would go on to become the next King of England. And this ends the story of the first divorce in England. But did it make divorce more readily obtainable in the years that followed for others trapped in unhappy marriages? Find out next time as we continue the story of divorce. Thank you for listening. My name is Deborah Sidaway, and remember that you can follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at Story of Divorce. Please join me again next time as we turn to the story of the second divorce in England. <laughs>